Heavenly Father, thank you that you desire those from every nation to come before you in praise. Father, we pray that as we come to your word now, uh, we pray that you might speak to us, that you might encourage us and equip us to be your church, to be your people. And we pray that you might also uh, comfort and challenge us. And in all that we look at, we pray that you might point us to Christ, that we may fix our eyes on him and resemble him more. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please take your seats. I never knew how divisive butter could be until I went to university. How could one simple dairy product cause so much disagreement? In my second year as a student, I lived with three friends, and that was a big deal because they, they were the first people that I had ever chosen to live with. Growing up, living with my parents and sister in Leicester. Then in my first year of university in London, I was placed in a flat with five other people who'd been randomly thrown together. But now in my second year of university, I was going to live with friends that I had chosen to live with. We'd gotten on really well in our first year. We had lots in common. And so we decided we would come and live together. But then came that divisive butter. When we moved in, we decided we'd share the cooking in the house, which looked like doing a joint food shop online and splitting the bill between the four of us equally. But none of us had accounted for that butter. Would we get a block of butter or spreadable? Would we get salted butter or unsalted? Would we get dairy butter or plant-based? Would we pay extra for Lurpak or would we get whatever was cheapest? We all agreed that we needed butter, but each of us had our own buttery preferences because of what we had grown up with. Eventually, after lots of conversation, we decided on unsalted, spreadable butter. Not the cheapest, but not Lurpak. And that's when the tension escalated. Uh, You see, each of us wanted to use that butter for a different purpose. Uh, One of my housemates used butter in most of their cooking instead of oil. Another predominantly used it in baking, so it was taking big chunks of butter from the tub at a time. The other to butter sandwiches for lunch. But then came the straw that broke the camel's back. When I was a student, I ate buttered toast for lunch every day for two years. Uh, Nothing wrong with that in principle, or so I thought. Uh, The problem was that I was getting toast crumbs all up in that butter, which for my other three housemates, that that was a deal breaker. Uh, So one evening over dinner, I was confronted over my big buttery mistake as we reviewed how the butter could be used in such a way that all in the house might flourish and so that the growing tension might be averted before, before things got out of hand. When you share a house with someone, those subconscious ways of doing things, those unwritten ways of living or viewing the world that you just assume is how everyone else sees things, they're challenged, brought into question. It's true of housemates who dispute buttery best practice. It's true of the married couple who wrestle with how to raise their child when they have maybe different experiences of being raised by their own parents. And it's true of us as a church at Cornerstone as we learn what it looks like to live together as one church family with all of our very differences and experiences. That's not always easy. If buttery best practice is hard, doing church together, that can bring even greater tension. 
Because when we come together as church family, we, we come as those who want to follow Christ and submit to his words. But within that unity, there will be differences in how we should do church because of how, have we, how we have been shaped by our different cultures. And so whilst there is much to celebrate about being inter-ethnic, intercultural church family, there is also the potential for great division, disagreements. The good news is that God's word, our passage, has so much to speak into this, so much to say about how we as a church family cannot just come together and tolerate one another, but how we might thrive and flourish together. And so as we delve into this wonderful passage from the book of Ephesians chapter 2, do keep that open in front of you. Though we're not going to answer every question about what it means to live as an intercultural and inter-ethnic church family, we're going to see that the basis for our unity is Christ, that he has reconciled us to God and therefore reconciled us to one another if we're in him. And that just as he was at work when our passage was first written, he is still at work in our church and in our world today, building a diverse people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, united around one gospel, in worship around one throne, as one family living under one roof. Three points this morning. Point one, remember what you were without Christ. Uh, It can be easy to forget just how powerful Jesus' message, the gospel, is. Uh, It's easy to forget that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. And that's because the gospel doesn't always look or feel powerful. We live in a world where the gospel looks weak and the world looks strong, where our feelings aren't always a reliable barometer of the truth. Paul begins our passage by reminding the Ephesians just how powerful the gospel they have is, that it is only in the gospel of Christ that we find the power to make an outsider an insider. Look down with me at verse 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world." Twice in the space of two verses, Paul gets the Ephesians from Gentile backgrounds to look back and remember what their life was like before they knew Christ. He doesn't paint a hopeful picture. He lifts five truths about their position before they became Christians, that they were separate from Christ, excluded from being a part of God's people, foreigners without a share in the promises that God had made to his people, without hope, without God in the world. It's a pretty bleak place to conclude, isn't it? Without hope, without God in the world. And yet that is the sobering reality for all who are outside of Christ. If you are a Christian in the room this morning, remember this is who we were. This has profound implications for how we think about what it means to be an intercultural, inter-ethnic church. It's, It's not that some of us have always been insiders and we're to welcome the outsiders who are different to us. No, the reality is that outside of Christ, none of us belong. All of us, by nature, are far from God, outsiders. And if you're not a Christian in the room today, 
This is who you still are. You don't have access to God because you remain alienated. You do not have the hope of eternal life. Only the fear of judgment. It's a hopeless place to be. But there is hope. Because it is against this bleak background and into this hopeless situation that God's love and his power shine so bright. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a verse. Those who were far away have been brought near, near. The gospel has the power to bring the prodigal home no matter how far they've wandered. The gospel has the power to turn alienation to reconciliation, to bring those out in the cold into the warmth of their heavenly father's embrace, to make the outsider an insider. How? How can those far off be brought near? That truth bookends verse 13, only in Christ Jesus, only by the blood of Christ. Christ, the son of God, the the ultimate insider, stooped from his home in heaven to become the ultimate outsider so that we might be brought near to God. And it cost him everything. He was alienated from his father as he bore the weight of our sin on the cross so that we might be reconciled. He shed his blood for us on that cross so that we might be healed from our sin, made whole. If you have come to church this morning feeling far off from God or or from his people, if you have come without hope for the present or for the future, if you, if you look around and think, I, I just don't fit in or belong here, know you are exactly the type of person that Christ died for. He died so that you might be brought close into his family. He died to make the outsider an insider. We could finish there. I could say, let me pray, invite the band back on stage, sing our final song, having been reminded and encouraged of God's love and his work in our lives, and we could leave and go about our week. So I do my faith, you do yours, and then if you feel like you need a spiritual top-up, maybe come to church again next Sunday morning. But if that's your view of the gospel, can I gently say it is, it is too small, it's too individualistic, it's just, it's just not a biblical view of what it means to be a follower of Christ, a disciple, because the wonder of the gospel, it isn't just powerful enough to reconcile us to God's. It is also powerful enough to reconcile us to one another. Point two, see what you are in Christ. It's in these verses that we read some of the most powerful words ever recorded. Words that explain what Christ has done to reconcile Jew and Gentile. People who did not want anything to do with one another. Words that show what Christ has already done, that he has already done the hard work, all of it required to make us an intercultural and inter-ethnic church. Look with me at what Christ has done in verse 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. 
He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Graham Bynan uses the six nations as a a really helpful illustration for what's taking place in these verses. If if you know nothing about rugby or the Six Nations, don't worry. Uh, The Six Nations is an annual rugby tournament that is currently taking place where European nations like England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland compete against each other on the rugby field, uh, beating one another up to determine who the best rugby team in Europe is. It's vicious, violent. They batter one another and bleed for their country and they do it all for the glory of winning. It's competitive on the field and and the division off the field runs just as deep as supporters wear their nation's colours. But in 2025, next year, something special will take place. Because next year, those players from England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland will take off their nation's colours and instead pull on the red jersey of the British and Irish Lions as they unite together to play rugby against Australia next year. All that hostility that we see on the pitch now is put to death. They are reconciled to each other because they have an identity which is greater than their nationalities, which means that they can play together, united as one team. A famous Bedouin proverb makes a similar point. It goes, I against my brothers. I and my brothers against my cousins. I and my brothers and my cousins against the world. The point is that in order for our different competing identities to be reconciled to one another, we must have a bigger identity that unites us. And that is what God has given us as his church. He's given us the biggest, deepest, ultimate identity in Christ as one new humanity. Those verses talked about Christ destroying the barrier between Jew and Gentile as he was sent in the flesh. That he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility to bring about true unity. The law no longer divides us. Being part of God's people does not depend upon following a set of regulations or by belonging to a particular culture. For Jew and Gentile, it now only depends on faith in Christ. And if Christ has reconciled both Jew and Gentile vertically, then his work also reconciles us horizontally. How can we continue to be hostile to one another when we are equally accepted by God, part of his family. Wherever we were to look in the world right now, we would see hostility emerge from those competing ways of dividing ourselves up. We can see in the news the bitter hatred of Israeli for Palestinian and Palestinian for Israeli, hatred that spans generations. And we know that hatred isn't reserved for the Middle East. Across our world, we're we're getting more and more divided. One human race, and and yet we split ourselves into white and black, right wing, left wing, traditional, progressive, immigrants, those born in country, rich and poor. The human race is wearing more and more shirts. But Paul says, as we put our faith in Christ Jesus, it's it's as if we all pull on the same shirt. Those differences remain and are to be enjoyed, but but they don't define us. What defines us now is our shared identity in Christ. 
It's an identity that truly has the power to heal across incredible divides, hurts, and differences. As Christians, we're not a club. We're not an interest group. We are a new humanity. Because it's not just in the gospel that Jew and Gentile can come together, coexist happily, but that together we have been joined together into a new people altogether. Andrew Walls said, the church must be diverse because humanity is diverse. It must be one because Christ is one. So when we talk about celebrating inter-ethnic and intercultural church, we're not giving ourselves a pat on the back and going, well done us for being so diverse at Cornerstone. No, we're celebrating the work of Christ. We're seeing what he has already accomplished and made us to be through his gospel. And we're celebrating, giving him the glory and worship that he deserves for all that he has done. This isn't a passive thing. We're not just to see what Christ has made us to be. We're to be and become and enjoy what Christ has made us to be more and more. Our final point, point three. Become what you already are in Christ. We've taken a bit of a whistle-stop tour of our passage and, and seen that despite what we were in the gospel, we are reconciled to Christ, uh, reconciled to God in Christ. And we've seen what we are in Christ, that if we are reconciled to God, then we're also reconciled to one another as a new humanity. But here's the key question. How does that work in practice? What does it look like to live out and be a new humanity? Uh, How can we become what we already are in Christ more and more? Well, the final verses of our passage give us three really helpful pictures. Uh, Look with me at verse 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Paul gives us three pictures of what we already are in Christ. Uh, One political, one domestic, and one spiritual. Uh, The political image is that in Christ, those in the church are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, equal, worthy of the same dignity and rights as our fellow citizens. Uh, The domestic picture is that we are members of his household, a family, those who live together under one roof, bonded by blood. And that leads us to Paul's spiritual picture. Whose house is it that we live in together? It's God's, his temple. As we saw in our Haggai series, with Christ as the cornerstone, through the teachings of the apostles and prophets, he has built us onto Christ as a holy temple to the Lord. Three pictures of what we are in Christ. And for the time that we have left, I want us to really apply those three images well. 
ask questions about those pictures as we consider how we might better reflect and enjoy being an intercultural, inter-ethnic church family here at Cornerstone. Firstly, the political image. Fellow citizens with God's people. If in Christ, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that once separated and segregated us has been destroyed, if Christ has torn down the walls that divide us, who are we to put those walls back up? Are there ways here at Cornerstone where we put up walls deliberately? Or maybe without even realising it. Maybe there's particular people we, we find it hard to get on with at church or have a conversation with. Are those that we don't spend time with because they're just so different to us from a different generation, nationality, class, or, or just because our personalities are so different. I hope we're a church where none of us would ever go up to someone and say, you are not welcome here. But is it possible that by our attitudes or, or by our, who we spend our time with, uh, we are in fact putting those walls back up. In a big church like Cornerstone, for, for many of us, it can be really easy to just spend time with people who are just like us. And whilst I'm not saying that we should keep a tally of who we've spoken to week by week, or that we should have a rotor of who we've invited over for dinner, as I've spent time in this passage, I felt convicted that the people I spend time with in our church family, they tend to be those who are very similar to me. White, married, middle class in their 20s and 30s. And that's okay. It's good to spend time with people who are similar to us. But Paul tells us that Christ has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, that we are fellow citizens in God's family. Cornerstone is one beautiful, precious example of that. And so are we experiencing and enjoying the fruits of his work? Are we more than just a social club where similarly minded people can come together? Or could we be more intentional about spending time with those who are not like us, but who we are united to in Christ as fellow citizens over the weeks to come? Or maybe you've joined Cornerstone recently. You love the church, but because you're new, you can see some of our walls better than those who have been here for years. Would you gently point them out to us? I perhaps talk to one of the leaders, say, I've noticed we're not particularly good at welcoming this type of person. Or ask questions about the way that we do things at Cornerstone. If you think that there are ways in which by doing something differently, we could do it better. Now, maybe that there are deep-rooted biblical reasons for why we do things in particular ways that, that aren't going to change. Or it might be that we do things in a particular way because it's all we've ever known. No one's ever asked the question. Through his death on the cross, Jesus has smashed down the walls to create one body. And so consciously or subconsciously, we don't want to be a church that puts those walls back up again. Instead, let's enjoy living as fellow citizens with God's people. The second picture that Paul gives is a domestic one. We are members of God's household. We're church family. Barnabas Piper writes, the church isn't like a family, it is family. 
Sure, we may not be bonded by flesh and blood, but we are bonded by Christ's flesh and Christ's blood. We might not all live under the same roof, but we do worship under one roof. And as an inter-ethnic and intercultural church family, we have the opportunity for some really brilliant conversations around the family dinner table. A couple of months ago, I remember having a really helpful conversation about prayer in the office with Teresa. Teresa's on our staff team. She grew up in Namibia. And we were talking about the words and the language that we both used when we prayed in staff meetings and, and how it differed quite a lot. I can't remember how the conversation started, but I asked Teresa, Teresa, why, why do you pray thank you, Father God, for something that, that hasn't happened yet? I'd say safety when traveling. She explained how she knew God might not answer that prayer, but that she knew he was a sovereign God who can do more than we ask or imagine. And so she wanted to pray in such a way that demonstrated her expectancy. She then flipped the question around and asked me, why do you so often caveat your prayers? Why in your prayers do you pray, dear Lord, we pray for this, but if you don't do that, then we pray that you do this instead. And if you don't do that, then we pray that you'd help us to remember that you're sovereign instead. Why was I caveating most of my prayers? I thought and explained, I, I too wanted to pray in such a way that recognized God's sovereignty, uh, that recognized as a human, I might not know the best solution to a situation, but that I could trust that because God is sovereign, he would do what was right and good. We weren't trying to catch one another out. The conversation came from a place of being interested in something that we'd spotted that was different. Uh, and both Teresa and I found that conversation really useful in, in better understanding each other, recognizing some of the ways that we prayed might be shaped more by our culture than by the words. But it also helped us to better understand our gods. Talking about our differences helped us to both come to a deeper appreciation of his sovereignty from, from two very different angles. It gave us both food for thought about the way that we prayed. Our differences as a church family are something that we can bond over. They can teach us more about one another, yes, but they teach us more about the God that we worship in Scripture. So let's make the most of them. Be interested in others. Enjoy the conversations that you have around the family dinner table. Finally, the spiritual temple, uh, the spiritual picture, the temple. With Christ as our cornerstone, the one whom our faith is built on, Paul writes in verse 22 that the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord's. That word rises makes it sound like laying one brick on top of another, and, and that's kind of true. But actually the word that Paul uses here is, is grows. It's less a building rising layer by layer. It's, it's more a child growing in maturity, a, a plant growing up. So it's not just numerical growth, people being added to the temple. It's maturing growth becoming, resembling more, the temple that we are supposed to be. We began our time by thinking about the divisive power of butter that existed in my house during my second year of uni. Uh, and that was quite a fun conversation to have around our dinner table back then. We chatted about our differences, laughed a lot about how we could disagree over something as trivial as butter. But do you know what? Over the course of that year, there were other differences that emerged different ways of doing things, viewing the world that, that didn't lead to laughter. 
instead resulted in frustration. Small differences that weren't resolved, that began to pile up on top of each other, that, that eventually led to bitterness. And, and do you know what happened at the end of that year? Not all of us lived together the year after. That was an option. That was okay. But as the temple of God, that option does not exist for us. Sure, we could move to another local church down the road. But from the point of view of eternity, we as the church have already been united together for eternity as God's temple. We will be together forever. And God has given us his word to equip us for every good work now in this life so that we might be those who graciously resolve our differences, but who also enjoy living together as we grow in love and peace and unity and model the reality that is to come. And so in the years, the decades ahead, what would it look like for us here at Cornerstone to be built into a temple that better reflects the truth we've seen in our passage. That in Christ, we have been made into one intercultural, inter-ethnic church. What would it look like for us to grow in this area? Talk about that as you enjoy some of the snacks afterwards, because, because it's not as simple as just having more people from other backgrounds be part of the church. If we are to grow as a temple in the Lord, it's not just numerical growth. It is maturing growth. So what do we want to pray that the Lord would change and grow in us? What changes might we begin to make on an individual level? Are there things that we should be talking about and changing on a corporate level? There's lots of important questions for us to think through. But as we close, it's it's important to remember it is not our job to make ourselves an intercultural, inter-ethnic church. It is Christ's work from first to last. It is who he has made us to be. It is who he is growing us into. One day it is who we will perfectly resemble. And so our job is to continue to look to him, to look to his word, to pray that he would continue to mold and shape us more into the people that he wants us to be, who we will be. And so as we close, let me close with with a picture of that day from Revelation 7, 9 to 10. The words that we read earlier in our service. Let me close with these verses. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let me pray as we close. Father, thank you that you have done all the hard work for us. That your gospel has knocked down the dividing barriers and the walls of hostility. Thank you that in Christ we can be united to you as your children. And thank you that because we are your children, we are united to one another as brothers and sisters. Father, help us as we try and work out how to live together under one roof, despite our differences. 
but help us to enjoy those differences too, to know more of the people you have made in this world, to know more of the God that we serve. Build us more and more into the people that we see in Revelation, we pray. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.